welcome to episode 241 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I am stoked in this episode to continue our little series on Providence. Yes. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Providence and creation. If you missed what's happened so far, go back, catch a listen. We've already talked about Providence and aseity, and this episode's going to be even better than the last yes. one. Yes. Because always better, always better, always reforming, always getting better. We have not peaked yet. We just keep ascending. It's incredible. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I, we're, we're just, we're so great. We're so amazing. This is the best podcast you're ever going to hear. I know all of the best podcasts and this is the best podcast you're ever going to hear. This is the definitive podcast, just full stop definitive podcast. Yes. I love that we could barely make it through that <laughs> straight face. I, I just kept trying to escalate to see when we would break. It actually didn't take that long. Yeah. Not shocking. No, not shocking. Not shocking. Not at all. But before we continue this whole series, one thing we want to point out is that this series has really been in part sponsored by Logos Bible Software, which is something that you and I use even in the course of providing and doing research for a lot of our episodes. So we want to encourage our listeners to support them. Go check out the product. They have a full suite of different offerings, which I think are useful for all Christians in all positions. Lovers of the Bible, Logos Bible Software is a great tool. And the fine people at Logos have a special deal for our listeners. Tony, what is that deal and where can they get it? Yes, if you go to logos.com slash reformbrotherhood, you can get a 15% discount off of a base package of your choosing, which uh, depending on which base package you choose could be a pretty hefty discount. Uh, in addition to that, you can get five free books, and uh, they've got some good ones. They've got uh, Spurgeon's commentary on First Peter's, one of the Ooh, offerings. Yeah. Uh, they've got uh, the history and decline of the Roman Empire, which is oh, cool, yeah. or the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Um, so they have a, a good smattering of different options. Hen you know, Henry uh, Matthew Henry's con uh, concise commentary. I can't even talk today. They have one Calvin's on uh, Calvin on Scripture and divine sovereignty. So they've got a lot of good offerings for uh, pretty much every different kind of Christian tradition. Uh, and free books. Who doesn't want free books? Free I mean, books, it's, it's people. It's free books. And one thing that I will point out about Logos that I've mentioned before, they give you a free book every month. They give you just a free book and then a discount on books that are kind of associated with that book. So it might be that they give you the volume, the you know, a copy of the Acts commentary from a given series, and then you can buy Romans, First and Second Corinthians for an additional fee. But it's a, a pretty deep discount on those. So you can start to even if you don't buy a you know extensive package, you can start to build a pretty good library uh, over time for not a lot of money if you just sort of keep at it and diligently get those deals. Exactly. Just set up the Logos account, people. And then I can't reiterate this enough. Free books. Go yes. get the free books. Do not yes. walk. Run to your internet and go check out Logos. Also, the internet is probably in your pocket, so you don't even need to go anywhere. 
Thanks for clarifying that. Yes. Destroying my metaphor. The internet doesn't actually exist in a particular physical place, Jesse. I don't know if you know this. It's not actually a series of tubes. Uh, Yes, I appreciate that. So thanks for sucking all the wind out of my (laughs) trying to just bring urgency. So yeah, that was just a metaphor, people. I do understand that the internet is basically probably right in front of you right now, no matter what you're doing. So whatever the equivalent is that, just get it out of your pocket really fast and go do it. Do it now. Don't go to Twitter first. Go do this first. Right. We'll wait. We'll we'll wait. Yeah. (laughs) We'll wait. We actually won't, but you can pause us and force us to wait. That's true. Well, speaking of things that we'll have to wait, one of those things is normally we jump into a little affirmations and denials on our every episode here. That's our pattern. That's what we do, but it's going to have to wait because right now, before we get into really the center cut, the meat of what we're talking about today, there was a question from the interwebs that we wanted to address. Yes. Yeah. So uh, a member of our Reform Brotherhood Facebook group named Robert, um, he asked this question. I don't know if Robert listens to the show, but Robert, if you listen, there's several episodes that we've uh, talked about this more extensively. But his question is, uh, after giving a, f- a pretty fair summary of the regulative principle, uh, he more or less asked, so what, what do we do with things like microphones, seating, wall color, projectors, all of the other kinds of things that are present in our worship, but don't have an explicit command in scripture. And so you know, rather than than go into a lot of detail in the thread, which I, I answered briefly, but um, I thought it would be helpful for everybody because this is something that comes up. I think anytime you talk about the regulative principle, there's always going to be that one guy that's like, well, yeah, but we have light bulbs. So, so th- when you talk about the regulative principle, um, what we're talking about, and notice that I didn't say regulative principle of worship, right? One thing that I personally think is important, the regulative principle is not just restricted to worship. It's applied to gathered corporate worship in a particular way, but realistically what we're saying as Christians is that all of life is regulated by the scripture in in various applications in various ways. It's not the case that you can just do whatever you feel like you want to do, and as long as the Bible doesn't have some sort of specific thou shalt not verse, then you're you're good to go. We have to only do that which scripture uh, commands and and only what scripture commands. Now, how that plays out in particular contexts and, and in different ways is, is something to look at and study. But in, in the um, course of gathered worship, when we're talking particularly about the Lord's Day, there are two things to remember. There's elements of worship and there's circumstances of worship. And some people use circumstances as though it means like the things that are on the margins or the things that are sort of the gray area where we don't have an explicit command, but we can, you know, we can still do it. And they actually just basically say like, well, elements are things that are governed by the regulative principle. And then almost by default, circumstances are things that fall under some sort of normative principle, right? So like we can do them as long as we don't consider them worship, as long as they're not like central to our worship, we can do them. That's not how it works. So, so elements are things that are commanded by God. We must do them in corporate worship. It's required for us to do them in corporate worship. We cannot add to them. And to even like talk about creating a new element is in itself kind of incoherent. Elements are the things that's God, which God has established as mandatory ordinances for us to do in gathered public worship. What circumstances are is each of those elements exist in a specific way in the world when we do them, right? So so we're commanded to sing. Well, that involves our voices. That involves tones, right? Well, what tones? What what 
what tunes do we use? Well, that's not commanded, but there has to be a tune. Even a series of notes that are exactly the same note in a sequence is still a tune. And so that the actual tune, that's a circumstance, right? We're commanded to gather together. Well, if you're going to gather together, you have to be at a particular time and a particular place. So that time and place, that is a circumstance. So so how this applies then is things like walls. Well, we don't have to meet in a building, but we're not forbidden from meeting in a building. And so we are we're using our Christian prudence in most places in the world at most times of the year, it's prudent to have some sort of shelter under which you gather, right? In New Hampshire, if we didn't have shelter, we wouldn't be able to gather for probably seven or eight months out of the year. It just wouldn't be feasible to do. So we have to gather, well, what about the color of the walls? Well, it, walls necessarily have a color, so it's a circumstance that our gathering requires a particular time and place, and we, we may or may not have walls, according to Christian prudence, and those walls must have a color. Even if you don't paint them, there's still a color. And so those kinds of things, you know, when you're speaking— well, do you use a microphone or not? Well, that's a matter of Christian prudence. That's a matter of wisdom. Do you want everybody to hear you? Well, yeah, the, the, a sermon is not uh, is not really useful to anyone who can't hear it. So we have a microphone to amplify our voices to make sure that people can be heard. So what we have to make sure we remember in this distinction between circumstances and elements is not that circumstances are like the things that we can add that add like flavor text. That's sometimes how I hear it is like, it's like, uh, color commentary or it's something you add that isn't essential to worship, but it kind of like adds a little flavor, a little spice to it. That's not what a circumstance is. A circumstance is the necessary attending con uh, circumstances for an commanded elemental act of worship. So instruments, instruments in my view and how I understand the scripture, instruments are circumstantial, not because I can choose to add them if I want to, but because instruments may aid in corporate worship. They may aid in allowing the congregation to sing and singing is an elemental aspect of worship. I know that the the, the acapella psalm singers are going to say, well, no, that's that's not, I get that. that I, that's beyond this discussion. It's a good conversation to have, but not for this. So that's the answer to this question. Now, when we get to things like fog machines, th there's nothing necessary about fog machines or even really aiding worship, right? There's no command to like create a particular kind of atmosphere in worship. Right. There is a command to sing, and that involves some sort of unity, some sort of uh, corporate solidarity, and instruments aid in that corporate solidarity. Fog machines, laser light shows, those kinds of things, they just don't. And so that's where we draw that distinction. Uh, and the other thing just to, to sort of point out is in, in the course of this thread, someone brought up the idea of like Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, and they were getting at the idea that the Old Testament Jews and the people in the intertestamental period clearly believed that they had the prerogative to add religious celebrations to the gathered worship of God's people. First of all, the response to that is that the people, the, the, the Israelites didn't always do the right thing. They didn't always get it right. So, so just because they did it doesn't mean that it was correct. Even if we assume it was correct, the regulative principle as understand, understood by most of the Reformed tradition allows for the addition of celebrations of thanksgiving for God's redemptive acts, particularly God's redemptive acts, but also civic celebrations. So the people of Israel 
creating or, or creating some sort of sort of civic celebration or, or Thanksgiving celebration of a, of a redemptive act in history is not a violation of the regular principle. Instituting a new act of religious worship that necessarily involves a particular kind of worship, that would be. So I know there's a lot more to say. I just wanted to sort of touch base on that quick because I, I knew it was a question that came up and, and why not answer a question that came up? Yeah, that's great. I think that answer is right on point. I'll just quote from the Second London Baptist Confession, which says it this way, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So, of course, that yeah. gets to the meat of what you're saying, that really we want to focus between or focus on the difference between like elemental and circumstantial. What we're saying is that God just gets to set the agenda and define the parameters. I think what you said that's most helpful for a lot of people is first of all, I'm presuming that this question again comes from this place of wanting to make sure that worship is done properly. Right. So sometimes I've seen this question levied against regular principle because they're trying to like exaggerate the fact that look at all the things you'd have to pay attention to. If like, you know, God didn't say, you know, it, it, how are you going to decide what color the carpet's going to be? Because that needs to make sure it's part of regular principle. That's missing the point. Like that's missing right. the whole thing because it's, we let the elements determine the circumstance. So I think your example of like, just take the simple act of meeting in a place together where people aren't going to be like exposed to like the elements and like suffer right. loss from their health. So in other words, we know that elementally God has commanded us to meet on the Lord's day. That has to happen in a building for us to actually do that and to be able to focus and worship on God as opposed to like just trying to stay dry or warm or something like that. So because buildings have walls, circumstantially, they're going to be present. And therefore there's a right. lot of freedom in that. Now you could flip this a couple ways. Think about if, if you confuse these two, what you'll end up is in a situation where all your circumstances are treated like elements. And that's also clearly wrong. So right. if in the example of the fog machine, if the elemental command was to worship like it was a rock concert, then the fog machine comes, becomes circumstantial, theoretically. Right. But again, it's, it's all about deciding what are the plain things, and those should be the main things that God commands. Everything else is just a circumstance that is necessitated by obeying the elemental right. command. I'd right. say the only place where I would say really loving Christians get into some robust dialogue about that is with exclusive somnity and music. Right. And I do think that there is room for some great dialogue there, but I would say that's usually not the thing people bring up. They usually bring up things like these modern conveniences that are like accoutrements of right. our church experiences, like sitting on pews or, you know, because again, if you were going to say that the regulative principle had to define everything, think of all the things it would have to define down to like the, what is your communion cup made out of to right. what kind of shoe leather are you going to put on your feet on the Lord's day? Like it would be insane. Again, that's, that's missing the point. So right. this is always good discussion. I'm glad that this kind of comes up because I love that it's at it. People are trying to take worship on the face for the way that God decides it, God pres prescribes it so that we might please him and honor him. I love that intent. So this is yeah. like a great question. Yeah. And just to sort of add maybe a, a, a just one more period on the, the sentence here is reading from uh, Westminster, um, sure, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 21 and uh, section six here. 
it says here, I'm going to truncate it a little bit. It says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, men's salvation, faith, and life is either set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from scripture. Sorry, this isn't chapter 21, it's chapter one. How dare you. Um, And then it says, unto which nothing at any time may be added, whether new revelation of the spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the spirit of God to be necessary. And then it goes on to say, and as in we acknowledge this thing, the spirit illumination, and we acknowledge that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules right. of the word of God. And so what that means is if you just take the Lord's day gathering, just the, the simple act of gathering, which is an elemental part of our worship, which is why we've been pretty clear, I think, that the Zoom Zoom church isn't isn't worship. It's not it's not a worship service. It's something that we've been doing uh, that most most churches have been doing because gathering wasn't wasn't a safe option for most people. Yeah, I know there's a lot of debate about that, but the simple act of gathering which is a commanded element of worship that we come together, right? That requires a time, it requires a place since people are going to be present, we have to we're either standing or sitting or laying on the ground there's some sort of posture because bodies existing in a space and time requires some sort of posture. And, and all of those things come together to mean we have to choose the time, we have to choose the place. Right. If we're in a place, if we're not outdoors, then we have to choose what the, the makeup of that place is, what kind of walls there are, what decorations there are on the wall, or are there no decorations? When we're talking about posture, are we standing, are we sitting, are we laying on the ground, are we kneeling? Well, if we're sitting, what are we sitting on? All of those, all of those attendant circumstances, that's the key word, all of those things that are required to get to the elemental act of gathering or the elemental act of singing or the elemental act of the Lord's table or giving of offerings or public prayer, the preaching, all of those things, there are these these circumstantial elements that may be different that we decide based on wisdom according to the general rules of the Word of God, which is what it's talking about when it's talking about the, the moral law. We make these according to the moral precepts that God has revealed to us. So we choose to wear clothes to gathered worship because we have been commanded to be modest. And so we should wear clothes. Well, now what clothes? Well, that's a circumstance. If you're, you know, if you're a new pastor in a congregation that everybody has always dressed up for church and wears suits and ties, then it probably makes sense for you to wear suit, a suit and tie if you're the pastor. If, if you're a new pastor in a country church where people come, you know, they've been working on the farm for three hours before they come to church and they come to church grubby and dirty and, and wearing their farm clothes, well, then you maybe don't need to dress up as much. And maybe it wouldn't be wise to dress up as much. So all of these different things come together as the attendant circumstances to accomplish the elemental act of worship. So when you have something like a fog machine, you have to ask what elemental act of worship exactly. is requiring me to make a decision yep. whether or not I use a fog machine. Right. Well, there's there's no requirement, there's no necessary circumstance to to use a fog machine. If there was some sort of command in scripture and the atmosphere or the type of worship, the music, whatever it was, required a fog machine or required setting some sort of ambient atmosphere. Then, then maybe you have a conversation of, well, can I accomplish it with this 
kind of machine? Can I accomplish it without this kind of machine? Maybe, but that's just not there. So that's that's what's important when we're talking about this. So I think it's a great question. I'm glad to answer it. I'm glad that it came up. And you know, we we don't uh, we don't pull a lot of questions from the uh, Facebook group, but if there's a good quick hit question that comes up, uh, we'll definitely address it probably in, on the show sometime in place of affirmations and denials. So if you have a question and you want us to answer it in sort of a shorter upfront kind of segment like this, then go ahead and ask the question. Tag me on the on the thread and we'll be happy to to look at getting it on the show plus we'll take any opportunity to talk about fog machines and it's corporate true. worship that i have really a fog is... machine going right now <laughs> we that's what people don't realize is whenever we record we both have fog machines going it's yeah. what creates this great ambience that you hear it translates in our voices so if you've wondered what is that like special sauce that tony yeah. and jesse have fog machine I mean, I don't, there's nowhere that I go except corporate worship that I don't have a fog machine. I carry one with me at all times. <laughs> you just have one like in your back pocket. So you yeah, walk my into a room hate it. and it's just, here's Tony and there's fog. I love that. Yep. My coworkers absolutely hate it. They're like, I can't see anything. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you, man. It's, that's just how it is. <laughs> this, this segment has already gone on far too long. <laughs> it's true. So. We're back then into our little series here, the, the unknown series, the providential series that Providence will determine how long it goes on. But we're in another episode and we've been spending some time doing like really deep dives so far, really kind of sucking the marrow out of this concept, understanding the construct of Providence, all its ramifications. And also we kind of make the argument when we started this series, beginning at the start, which was yes. backing all the way up on this so that we understand that impounded in Providence is so much of who God is that we cannot understand the outworkings of providence to understand the inworkings, so to speak, with respect to his character and his person. And so we're moving from that starting point in a couple of different directions. And one of those is trying to understand providence and creation. That's where we want to spend the bulk of our time talking on this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, longtime listeners of the show have, will know that I've been working on memorizing the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism probably forever, like since I've known about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And one of the things that really struck me, that just clicked with me at one point, I've talked about these points where like certain theological axioms, it's almost like they unlock a range of other things that, that suddenly things make sense, is question, um, question eight of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, how doth God execute his decrees? And the answer is God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And it always confused me a little bit why, why those two things were connected to each other. And then you, you get to starting to read and you start to study the scriptures. And what you see is that creation and providence are flip sides of the same coin. Right. So creation is like this initial act that God, that God does over the, the space of six days, we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that, but over the space of six days, by the word of his power, out of nothing, right? So, so there's, there's not pre-existent material. God is not shaping and forming something that was already existent. He's doing it simply by the word of his power, which is kind of a, biblically is like a circumlocution, like it's a way to, to sort of talk around a concept instead of talking about the concept directly. And by the word of his power, it simply just means by the force of his will. He's just doing it almost like immediately. There's no mediation. There's no media which he uses. So it's not... 
you know, when a, when a potter shapes a pot, he's using a, a medium, a, a pot, you know, a spinning wheel, or maybe he's a, a sculptor and he's chiseling something. He's using something that mediates his energy and his effort to then form whatever it is that he's forming. He's taking energy. He's using a tool to focus that energy in a particular way in order to bring about a created effect or a caused effect. God doesn't work that way. And that's that was what we labored over last week was to say God is not a cause in the normal ch- chain of causation, the secondary chain of causation. Right. When God, God is the first cause, meaning that he is the immediate cause of all secondary causes, even though they unfold according to secondary natural causes. So right. at the same time, God causes it to rain. Also, dust particles in the atmosphere with water condensing around them until they reach a critical mass and no longer remain suspended in the air and then fall to the earth. That's also causing the rain. And those two statements are not, they're not on the same register. They're not, they're not in contradiction. They're not even in harmony with each other. They're not even the same register of, of thought in terms of what we're talking about when we talk about causation. And so when God creates, he does so in an unmediated fashion. Simply by the word of his power, he's not using any instrument in order to to focus his energy. He's not creating with some preformed matter. He simply is causing it to be by fiat, by declaration, by by the word of his power. Well, then you start to read. You get to you get to Hebrews, and it's you know all things were created through the Son, who upholds all things by the word of his power. It's that same phrase, that same concept that God creates in the beginning. But then he sustains, and he's, that's where we're talking about with providence. All things are sustained by that very same word of power, which he originally created with or created through. And that's, that's where we're going with this, this topic tonight, is exploring an understanding that you can't have a robust understanding of, of creation or of providence unless you understand some of these elements of how it is that God created and the, the unique way that Christianity and Judaism uh, and sort of, I suppose, uh, Islam in kind of like a like a ducktail or dovetail fashion, that they they also believe in this ex nihilo creation. Did you say ducktail? I did say ducktail. Woohoo! <laughs> also, how are you going to talk about created from nothing but not drop the cool Latin phrase? I did. I just did at the end there. Did you? You were so you were so got, set on the ducktail joke that listen, I, you missed I, when I said ex nihilo. I heard I heard ducktails, and all I could think about was Scrooge McDuck swimming in yeah. a pool of money. And then you can we can we just pause for a second? That would never work. Like there's this old cartoon I saw where it shows Scrooge McDuck diving off his little like diving board yes. in his little like yeah, 1940s bathing suit. Yeah. And then he's like splattered all over. It's quite graphic actually. He's like splattered all over the coins. You can't dive into a solid like a pool of coins and not die. No, I I agree with you. I mean, it is a cartoon, so I I, I think well, that's yeah. probably there was a long list of things that were yeah. not really I mean, he also talks. So yeah, he was Scottish. So. He was also a very wealthy duck. So Yeah. starting there it's true. I think you this... never see Scrooge anywhere on the Lord's Day, so I, mean, I just have to assume he was devoting the whole day to the private and public worship of God, like a good Scotsman. <laughs> yeah, I, I really I can't argue with you about that. I mean, seems, where's the lie there? Where's the lie? It seems absolutely airtight, but that it yeah. wrapped all around to me between the Ducktales and fiat, and of course fiat currency. But but all this stuff, even that's a good example of what we're talking about here. That I, I think what you said is instructive to people who sometimes maybe haven't thought that there's a big difference between creation and procreation. So right. creation is something unique to God. 
and procreation is something that we hold in common. But even when we create things, we say that, like, you know, I created this thing or I, I, I'm trying to think of things like, I created this fence. I don't know. I created this spreadsheet. You're still, you're not doing it ex nihilo. It's not out of right. nothing. You are still leveraging some other preexistent thing to support the effort that you're undertaking. Right. God is altogether, of course, separate, but we often don't make that distinction. And we often don't let that distinction kind of settle in or come through into our understanding of providence. So God has made made all things out of nothing and all very good. So I like what Thomas Watson says about th- this when he's talking about understanding providence and creation. He says, you know, God created everything ex nihilo without any preexistent matter out of the womb of nothing. And right. at the first, very good. I love that. Without defect or deformity prior to the fall. So yeah. this is, it's interesting because I think that kind of the case you're making here is that we want to understand that God is the first order effect of all things, that there are second order effects that don't somehow come in contradistinction to the fact that he is the first order. And yet at the same time, there's something to be said for, like we said with Hebrews there, where there's a beauty in God upholding all things that he has made, that there is still under his creative care, the keeping up, so to speak, with all this stuff. Not as if it's like extra work for him, but his goodness is represented in the, the precise manner in which the natural world, these second order effects continue to move forward in their cycles because he is the one ultimately sustaining them. So that is like to remove God from the universe, if that were even possible, would of course be to cause everything to move into complete like immediate atrophy and decay and chaos. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I think one of the things that um, is important for us also to sort of like latch on to when we're talking about the, the catechetical language here in terms of how God creates, you know, we've referenced it a couple times, but question nine is what's the work of creation? This is the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing, right? So there's that ex nihilo, God is not using preexistent matter by the word of his power. So he's not doing it by some other instrument or some other means in the space of six days. And so I, I don't want to get into like the discussions about framework theory and day age theory and, you know, all that stuff. But but I, I'm firmly convinced that God actually created in the space of six 24-hour calendar days. That that's my conviction. I think I think you can make some framework arguments, but that's my conviction. And and so when we're talking about creation, we're limited to those six days. Right? That's that's the biblical um, time period for creation. Is you know God unfolds kind of he kind of creates creation by the word of his power over the course of these six days, and that's why you know I, sometimes you wonder like why does it say six days instead of seven days? Wasn't there seven days of creation? Well, I guess technically speaking, no. We would say there were six days of creation and then a seventh day of ongoing providence. That, that's kind of how I would frame this conversation. Now, is that God by sheer force of will, by sheer force of his power, his decree becoming reality, he takes these six days and unfolds creation in this logical sort of cascading fashion. And I was reading um, Calvin's commentary on Genesis, and this, I think, just really kind of kind of puts a point on it and why it is that we have to, we have to sort of think about creation and providence as two sides of the same coin, right? But we also have to think of both of those things in light of what we talked about with aseity, that God is not is not bound by the ordinary chain of causation, right? So Calvin goes on this long thing where he's talking about like, well, light seems to precede the 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 
heavenly bodies, well, of course, why, why, why couldn't it? God, God can sustain and create in whatever way he sees fit. And, and the sun is not the utter origin of light. God is the utter origin of light. But he says here, uh, he says the first day, he says, here's the error of those. Here the error of those is manifestly refuted who maintain that the world was made in a moment. For it is too violent a cavil to contend that Moses distributed the work which God perfected at once into six days. Right? So I don't think he has Augustine specifically in mind, but Augustine was one of those people that says, God actually created everything in a moment, but Moses just kind of articulated as these six days to make it easier to understand. And then he goes on, he says, um, rather let us conclude that God himself took the space of six days for the purpose of accommodating his works to the capacity of men. Right. So, so normally when we think of a creative process, our, our procreative process, not, not like, not like biological procreation, but just generally humans creating things, humans making things. There is a necessary logical order of things that has to happen. If I want to make a statue, I can't start off with a pre-sculpted statue and then chisel away any, like, that's not how it works. I have to have a block of stone that's larger than the amount, than the size of the statue I have in mind, and then I chisel it away. God, God's creative act, because he doesn't fall into this normal chain of causation, that he's not dependent on, on the world, that the world does not affect him, he's able to create in this way that is not subject to the normal kind of rules that we would think of ordering. So Calvin's point that God creates light and that demonstrates that God is the ultimate origin of light as the first cause, that he's not bound by sort of these light giving objects. That's a little microcosm or a little micro parable of it in Calvin's view that, that God is saying, look, yes, ordinarily speaking, the light that you see in during the daytime is mostly coming from the sun, which is this ball of burning gas, you know, a million, I don't know how many millions of miles away, but this ball of burning gas is the ordinary origin of your light, but that's not necessarily so. God can create light without, without a source of light necessarily. And that's, that's part of what he's getting at here is that that's, that's that out of nothingness that we're talking about when we're talking about God creating ex nihilo. And because God has created these things, because he is the author of them, because he's literally put them together, he's spoken them into existence, this is his decretive will, that is, that all this thing happens by fiat. We go to Genesis 1, and we see that that's the order in which he creates the world. It also means, again, I think this is, maybe it sounds so obvious, but if you start to think of it that way, which is the way basically the catechism presents it out to you in this kind of sequential way of focusing your mind on the fact that God owns this stuff. He actually owns all things. And that the sun, per your example, must be a lesser form of light because God himself was the one that put it to, into being. And right. so this idea then I think should help us. I think we're starting to get a glimpse and to see, well, then what does that mean for providence? Like if God all owns all these things, God's control of all these things. He's made all these things without any kind of tools. He's done them ex nihilo with a word out of nothing. We've got then this kind of, I feel like you're building up, a, we'll keep with the statue metaphor, you're like building up a statue, so to speak, uh, because you've got God made all things, they were good, he made them out of nothing. God made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days, and then we move into things like, well, God created man in his own image. God is present in external work of providence as he upholds everything that he's right. created across all of history. But it's that ownership that I think is like really key, because what happens then is if you get this right... Then you are you create a bumper in your life where you're not going to fall off the track 
by trying to presume that you are not a contingent being. You know, God is, because he's not a contingent being, he's separate, autonomous, sovereign, all his own, then it makes sense in terms of seeing how his providence unfolds, given that sovereignty, given that power. When we take that away from God, even in a small way, by failing to understand the world in which we live, which he created, then what happens is we get a wrong view of God's providence, or we try to leverage God's providence against him as if like, there's something right. that we can do to yeah. somehow convince him to work in our favor, to move in a particular direction, as if there's a formula or a magic spell. All of this starts, the error starts, the root, if you will, is in this discussion. Yeah, and I think I think kind of why I wanted to go here is because I think sometimes people get a little bit sideways on the doctrine of providence because of kind of what you're saying is that they they have these artificial understandings or these unbiblical presuppositions about how it is that God is bound by the way creation is, right? So they describe miracles as sort of like God interrupts the ordinary, yes, the ordinary right, way of, right. of the laws of nature. And I, there's a certain level of like truth to that. But but then that's then turns into, well, God, of course, God couldn't do that because that violates the laws of nature. And so when we talk about providence, we have to go back into this six-day period prior to ordinary providence kind of kicking off, right? So God God is, I know it's very kind of vogue, and I've even used this this language to talk about how like in creation, God God use, does some things by using means, and he does some things not by using means. And I'm, I'm starting to move away from that. And I got that from Michael Horton. So I, it's not it's not a crazy position. But, you know, Michael Horton points to the fact that like, well, he said he does some things by fiat, let there be light, and there was light. And then he does some things by using created means to sort of bring them about, you know, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Well, he's still creating out of nothing. Right. It's not as though the earth without, without vegetation already present has some sort of inherent or intrinsic ability to generate plants, right? Plants don't come out of dirt unless there are already plants in the dirt in seed form. And so God is still speaking by fiat when he says, let the earth bring forth vegetation. He's talking about the, the arena or the realm that those plants will live in. You know, he says, let, let the waters swarm with living things. Well, the water just straight H2O with nothing in it has no ability to bring forth living creatures. That's that's not, you know, we're we're not uh we're not evolutionists, right? That that's actually the evolutionary theory. And I think part of part of the drive to do that is actually this sort of backdoor intention of sort of synthesizing and making a door for people who do hold to some sort of theistic evolution view to be able to read read Genesis and be like, well, yeah, you know, see like let the waters bring forth living things. Well, the waters don't bring forth living things without God's super supernatural fiat declaration that they will do that. And so we have to understand we're almost in this period in these first six days. I shouldn't say almost. In these first six days, we're in this period of time where the ordinary laws of, of, of providence, the ordinary way that things unfold according to secondary causes, haven't been established yet. They haven't, they haven't taken effect, uh, which is actually kind of ironic because isn't that like a central tenet of most, right. most modern Big Bang cosmologies is that in the early days of the universe, the normal forces and laws of, of physics didn't actually apply? So, so there's a logic to this, and I think we understand it because we see things like well, how could there be light if there's no sun? How can how can the earth bring forth living things? How can how can how can a a, a clay figure made out of dirt 
suddenly you become alive. It's because God is not operating according to the ordinary ways that secondary causes unfold. And so when we now get into providence, and we're going to talk about different aspects of providence kind of post-creation and post-fall particularly, when we get into ordinary providence, we also have to recognize that now God has now established secondary causes, but he's not bound by secondary causes. Right. So even though he ordinarily does operate, his, his, his decree ordinarily unfolds according to the secondary causes of providence. When we think about miracles um, or when we think about God kind of intervening in, uh, in creation, we're not entirely wrong to think about them as circumventing um, the natural law. I think we're better to think about those almost as like unique acts of ongoing creation. Right on. It's it's times where God exercises his prerogative as the creator of all things to cause something to happen not according to the ordinary ways that secondary causes unfold, right? Ordinarily, wine does not turn into or water does not turn into wine. There's no <laughs> there's no natural process whereby ordinary water will ever turn into ordinary wine. There's not one. Right. right? If you were to smash up a bunch of grapes and put it in the water, then yeah, well, then, but that's not water anymore. Now that's kind of like the precursor. I know in like beer, it'd be called a mash. I don't know what you call it in a wine, like a starter. I don't know. But either way, there's no ordinary providential unfolding according to secondary causes that would cause water to turn into wine or that would cause a virgin to conceive and give birth. Right. Right. So these are, these are times where God steps in and he exercises that first way of executing his decrees in in the order of providence, right? It's not as though he's providentially causing a miracle. Right. He's actually non-provident. I know this is a weird way to talk about it, but I think hopefully people get what I'm saying. He's not executing his will in a work of providence when he does a miracle. He's executing his will in a work of creation when he does a miracle. But it's happening in the context of his ordinary providence. Does that make sense? Am I am I way afield here? No, no, I got, I got what you're saying there. Because okay. I think you're using it in a, the providence there in a kind of colloquial way just to distinguish. I think what we're trying to say is that it's God's right to do this. He can do it. He's God. Right. And, and because of the way that he's manifested that ability in his original creation, and if he wants to do that again. It is his prerogative, as you said. It's his right and it's his authority. In other words, he's not right. bound to secondary causes in the same way that we are. And we sometimes try to put God in a box to bind him in the same way that we are, as if God set up his own rules that somehow he's stuck in. And that's just not true. I, I also am with you because I thought over time, I do too bristle a little bit at miracle language that tries to focus on interruption, as if God is doing something he doesn't he wouldn't really normally do this he wouldn't want to do that this way right. but he had to interrupt something that he created that was good as if this is a compromise and i'm glad you brought up the wedding at cana because that's the one i always think about and i think about it in this terms of providence because think about that miracle there's lots of components of that miracle are absolutely brilliant but think about just the fact that let's just talk about beverages for a second so it's obviously taking the water and turning it into a beverage. But here's the weird thing about the beverage. Like, obviously, wine was, in many ways, the preferred beverage for lots of reasons, spoilage and consumption, all that stuff. Right. So I understand, like, why it was not Gatorade. But think about the, the fact that wine has a necessary time component to it. So right. here's the question. If this is where it gets super weird, if you do not understand providence correctly by way of what you just defined, separating procreation and creation, 
God is creating that wine right in that moment. That is, that is the miracle. It's not necessarily interrupting a process, except that he's just taking water and he's creating from that right. wine. Now, the question you should ask, though, is, is the wine a lie? Because wine can't be created in an instant. Like, even if you just put grapes in there, even if you just right. put fruit in there, it takes time to ferment. So is it real wine or is it not real wine? In the same way, some people right. will say, well, how is there even soil? In original creation, right. if soil is really the, just the composite matter of decomposing animals and plant life, how they take place, all we're, you're, I think we're all saying the same thing is this is God's prerogative. It's his divine right. prerogative to be able to do this thing. That's part of his providence. So when he reaches down and interacts in our world in some way by way of a miracle, in this case, like the wine, that's real wine. He's created real wine. It doesn't matter. Right. And, and that's kind of, I feel like there's almost like a little bit of humor there in that particular passage, because when it's you know taken to the master of the feast and, and he tastes it, he's not like, there's nothing about the experience where he's like, wait a second, did this actually sit and get fermented in barrels? He just yeah. tastes it and it's like, this is wine. And, right. and that's, and that is what God is able to do in his divine prerogative through providence. Yeah. And, and th this is where I think we need to make the connection, right? Because this series is about providence. And I think when we first started thinking we were going to do this, we were like, well, yeah, we'll do like a couple episodes and really just talk about like providence itself. But what I'm understanding as I start, as I'm reading a little bit on this, in order to understand providence, right? So there's kind of like the front end, the prerequisites to understand providence. You have to understand who God is, how he operates. You have to understand aseity. You have to understand immutability. Now you have to understand creation as sort of like the beginning or like the pre-providence stage. And then we can talk about providence itself. Right. But then when we start to talk, and this is where we're at now, when we get to things like salvation, when we get to things like uh, the problem of evil or the last days, right? We get to those topics. You can't explain those things by appealing exclusively or even predominantly to ordinary secondary causation, ordinary acts of God's providence. Yes, exactly. Right? So we have to understand there's a reason that we call um, salvation regeneration, right? Generation is just the Greek word for like creation or birth, right? It's it's the, the, the Latin, rather the Latin word that refers to like this new thing coming to be. Right. So when we talk about regeneration, we're not talking about God, you know, using a natural process to now bring us back into alignment with his will. Right. He could, I guess, I guess maybe he could have done something like that if he, if he was going to arrange the universe in a very different way. But when we're talking about regeneration, we're talking about justification, we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about things that God does and says as a matter of declaration, yes. right? He declares He's that a person wine. will be given a new heart. There's no, there's no natural process which removes the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. That, that can't be done by nature. There's no natural process which causes my righteousness or lack of righteousness, rather, to be transferred to Christ and Christ's righteousness to be transferred to me. There's no natural process for that. So if we don't understand this category of these kind of pre-providential creative acts of God by the word of his power out of nothing and that are very good by necessity. They're very good because God is doing them. Then we won't understand what it means for God to recreate the human heart or to recreate the human person in the image and likeness of God, of, of Christ. We won't understand what it means for God to make all things new. There's no natural process in the eschaton that's going to have, uh, sorry, post-millennialists, I know that this is, this is rubbing you guys the wrong way, but there's no natural progression from the fallen, corrupt world 
to the future restored, glorified world. There's no natural process. And I know they wouldn't necessarily argue that there is, but sometimes they talk like there is. They talk like if we just keep on preaching the gospel that the world will naturally get better and better as a result of it. Well, no, it requires a special supernatural divine act of destruction and recreation in most most eschatological views in order to accomplish that. So we have to get this understanding of the first six days of creation and God's work in that, and then recognize that in God's special acts in, in providential time, God specially acts to sort of circumvene or un, not circumvene, but sort of act according to first causes and right. secondary causes within the created order to bring about these special things that only God can do. And that's the point is that if it was something that unfolded according to secondary causes, then conceivably we could actually bring them to pass because secondary causes are natural causes according to the natural order of things that God has ordained to be. So that would mean a natural agent can bring about a natural end. Only a supernatural agent can bring about a supernatural end. And that's what we're trying to get at when we talk about this. Right on. So much, wouldn't you say, of a lot of kind of current evangelicalism, especially in the West, is some kind of second cause salvation light. You Mm -hmm. know, it's this idea that if, I mean, even manifested, of course, in something like the sinner's prayer, but if we do the right things, if we get the right music, if we have the right environment, if we can stir up the right emotions, these things in combination, in tandem, or in some kind of special sequence will result in decisions for Christ. Now, there's something there with respect to just honoring the preaching of the gospel. So again, but this, we're getting back, that was moving us more into like legitimate elemental first causes, which in the way that God explains to us how salvation works. But there's so much more in common that we have as regenerated people with the water and the wine than we do with some kind of particular formula of second causes. And we need to be careful because I think even the best of us will sometimes tend to think in second causes when it comes to this kind of stuff, because we get used to thinking that deterministically, if we do certain things, if we create certain environments, if we make the music swell, it'll be more impactful. Right. And we need to be very careful about that. We need to honor God in his providence by understanding what it means for him to establish a providence in creation and then to see in our own lives as we move eventually in the topic of things like salvation. I like what you said. This idea of regeneration is a miraculous creation and that's the bottom line. And it's God's prerogative to do it. And only he can truly do that. Right. Yeah. And I want to read a passage out of, out of the gospel of John here that I think demonstrates what we're talking about, demonstrates this, this concept of of the miraculous as God executing his creative ability or his creative power, I guess, in within providential actions. Mm-hmm. And so it's from John chapter five. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool called a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five, has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. It's a little weird to me that the ESV still uses the word invalid, but uh, invalid for 38 years. <laughs> when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? 
The sick man said to him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and when I am going another step down, bef- when I am going another steps down before me. So just pull back a second here, right? Jesus says, Do you want to be healed? And in essence, this guy is saying, Yeah, but the the normal natural sec- right. natural secondary causation of me going into the water, which is how I'm healed, like I can't make that happen. Jesus says to him, and this is my own little sort of like sub summary in my head. Jesus said to him, we don't need secondary causation. (laughs) And he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now I'm going to read a little bit more here in a second, but when you think about this miracle, right? This guy was, he was laying at this pool. He had not been able to walk for 38 years, right? I I don't care who you are. If you do not exercise a muscle for 38 years, it is not, nothing is going to change it, right? It's not, no amount of force of will is going to allow you to move that muscle. It's gone. It's dead. And even at that length, it's probably likely that even with physical therapy, that muscle is not coming back. It's probably completely atrophied. But even with like a minor injury, you mentioned that you had a foot injury. You're doing some right. uh, doing some physical therapy for your foot. I have a, a, a muscle injury in my lower back that I still have to do like stretches and strength exercises constantly. Otherwise, that muscle tweaks again and I, I, I'm in like terrible pain all the time. Even even with physical therapy, you're still executing things according to secondary causes. Now, what we're talking about is not Jesus, you know, gave this guy a really good quick physical therapy uh, regimen that allowed him to, like, repair his legs. No, Jesus miraculously created new muscles. He rewired, probably rewired this guy's brain in order to be able to use those muscles. And he just said, take up your bed and walk. And the guy didn't ask a question. He didn't go, wait a second, that's not going to work. He just does it. He just knows that something is different. So then going on, starting in uh, the end of verse 9 here, he says, now this day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. Is it not lawful for you to take up your bed? And he answered, well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn there, withdrawn as there had been a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. That man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing the, doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus said, answered him, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, where this is important for our conversation today is that last phrase in, in verse 17, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So it's it's true and a good conclusion to think that this refers to the ongoing work of providence, right? That God is working and sustaining the whole universe. Jesus is participating in that work inseparably. You know, as we talked about it, this was one of the verses that Dr. Vidu goes to to sort of demonstrate this. But also he's referring to the fact that he just healed this guy on the Sabbath, right? right. He's saying, look, God, God works on the Sabbath. God is sustaining and causing the entire universe to remain in being on the Sabbath, not only this particular Sabbath, but God's eternal Sabbath. He's working on his eternal Sabbath. But he's also saying this particular act of, of creative providence. I don't know if that's a thing to say, but like he, he's executing his creative powers 
to recreate this man's legs and his muscles and all of the, the synapses and, and everything that's required for this guy to be able to walk. He does that in an instant simply by saying it. All of that is wrapped up in this phrase that his father is working and now he is also working. That is what we're talking about when we talk about providence is that that act wherein God operates in the world in a way that only God can in creation or in these creative interruptions or in the ordinary works of providence, which we're going to end up talking more about in the coming weeks, these ordinary works of providence where God sustains by the same word of power that he creates, he sustains the universe. And so if we separate that word of power into two words of power, we've missed the boat. We also have to recognize kind of what we're laboring over here is to get get this understanding that God's creative work, even though it is the flip side, it's still the flip side. Heads is right. the flip side of tails, but heads is not tails, right? So we have to understand that kind of dynamic if we're going to get any any progress made in other more, more particular discussions of how God's providence interacts with salvation or sin or evil or any of those things. Incidentally, this is the first reference in John's gospel for Jesus' oneness with the Father in work. So mm-hmm. significant. And of course, like, do you not, I, I hate to go back to the cliche. I, I mean, if there was a wall I could run through right now, I probably would. Because I love this, I love this passage so much because there's so much about it that's just awesome. Like when you stop and think, are you just impacted about the amount of, the kind of profound healing that we're talking about here is not really a reparation or repair of something. It's it's an outright recreation of something, if you can even call it. It's probably like a new creation in the sense that like, yeah, I, either way, the man presumably had muscles, but like, I love that Jesus doesn't just say to him, um, you know, get up and walk. He says, pick up your, like, I think in the King James Version, it's like, pick up your pallet, which I just find yeah. funny, but like, pick up your bed. It's like a full, like, yeah, it's awesome now. Like, this is totally fine. You're, you're great. Everything is great. And yeah. for Jesus to be able to do that, this shows the power of God, his father, because of course it is a healing, but how casually he does that healing. Do you know what I mean? Like on the page, yeah. it, just, it just seems kind of like a throwaway line, like pick up your bed and walk. Like almost kind yeah. of like, no, you can do it. And it's not like that at all. It's like right. exactly what you said, like Jesus in this moment just rewired this, this man's, like most of his body. Right. In, in a second, in a split second, in the, like less than a blink of an eye. And it's manifested in his casually saying to him, pick up your bed and yeah. walk. And so when then the Jews come after him and, you know, clearly Jesus knows what he's doing here with both the healing and the day in which he's doing the healing and they confront him. And he says, listen, I love that line. Like I'm working. My father is always working. That's the first reference that we get to this yeah. oneness with Jesus and the father in the terms of their work together. True. God, of course, rested from all his work on creation on the seventh day. But that doesn't mean like we've been saying that he stopped his work of sustaining his creatures. And so like the rabbis believe that because God was filling heaven and earth, that he can do as he wills in the world without breaking the Sabbath law. Right. God is working to give life to people. And therefore, Jesus, who shares in God's life, cannot stop working to give life to the sick and the suffering. And right. here he does it. But the way in which he does it is by basically creating something for that man in that moment. And that's right. the, the, the miracle that is profoundly different than just saying, well, God interrupted natural processes here. Uh, this man, like you said, is clearly fixated on a formula. And it's possible that, that there was healing that took place in that place. And so he's even trying to draw from experientially from what he knows to be true about these second causes. So it's almost like when we approach it from study and perspective in this way, 
it's almost a little bit humorous, isn't it? Like to me, yeah. I, I almost makes me want to smile because the guy's like, yeah, I want to get better. Like that's why I'm here. But somebody like sneaks in before I can get there. Right. And I do appreciate like your, your paraphrase, Jesus being like, we don't need secondary causes. Like I'm right. sure just but like I mean, that. that's, we don't need secondary that, causes. And so we'll, we'll get into this more when we talk about this, when we talk about, um, we're going to be doing, um, eschatology or not eschatology. We'll be doing Whoa. eschatology at some point, I'm sure, but we're going to do, uh, providence and salvation. Right. And, and just sneak peek. If you just read a little bit further in this passage, this same, this same dynamic of, you know, somebody thinks there's an there's a natural cause, and Christ comes and says, "No, no, there's it's not natural cause. We're just going to do this with primary causation." Right? That's my new Arsenal translation. But if you go a little further into the passage, that's exactly gets applied to salvation. Right? It it's gets the same exactly thing. applied in that same way. So this this is uh, this healing of this man uh, on the Sabbath. This healing of his legs, this rewiring of his all of his you know neural network, all of this stuff that we understand now would be required physically for for that to work. All of that then is a is basically an enacted parable for how salvation works. Right, right. We in our natural minds tend to think that there's all these things we got to accomplish. Right, if I can just get in that pool of good works, if I can just get that pool full enough, if I can just get to the next righteous deed fast enough, then then I can get salvation. Right. That's the natural mindset when it terms when it comes to salvation. But what Jesus does is he says, No, no. Salvation is a primary act of God. It's an immediate act of God. Right. Even though he he does use means in salvation, right? We're not saying there's no instrumental means in justification and sanctification. But the actual energy itself is not restricted by those means. It's not cause it's not transformed or changed in any way through those instrumental means, like an ordinary instrumental means would do something. So, so I'm excited because this, this way of looking at providence as these sort of like, I think creative interruptions is a good way for me. I think it's a good phrase to maybe coin is like God, God uses his creative energy to, to interrupt the ordinary secondary causation or to accomplish something apart from the ordinary chain of secondary causation. And that's what we look at when we say, when we talk about a miracle, whether that's causing ordinary water to become ordinary wine, right? There's nothing special about the water. There's nothing special about the wine. It's just, it's just changed. Or whether that is transforming a man's dead muscle muscles into living muscles that work, or whether it's transforming a human person who is an enemy of God into a human person who is now God's friend and son. All of those things are these creative interruptions within the, you know, apart from the ordinary chain of causation. Right. And to quote the Mandalorian, which we probably should, as we end this, this is the way, I mean, (laughs) what we're saying here is I want to be careful that people aren't hearing us say, well, God has interrupted here, overridden, and uh, it could happen by secondary cause. But he's choosing here to say, we don't, we don't need that. We can just go straight to the source. Right. The bottom line is the way that this happens is by God's, I guess we can, I'll steal your phrase, like the creative interruption. That's what's happening in salvation. So like the misunderstanding here could be, you know, this, this gentleman who's waiting by the pool, you know, when the pool is stirred up and the water is nice and warm, like who hasn't been, I assume at some point in your life, like in a hot tub. And let's say that you have... Uh, your back is sore. You have an ailing back. You go into the hot tub. It might make you feel better, but that there's no secondary cause that's going to bring like right. a full restorative healing to your body. So even for this man, there was nothing there. It wasn't as if right. if, if Jesus had like picked him up and just like dunked him in there first, like just you know like elbowed people out of the way and right. like stiff armed everybody that he would be healed. 
Uh, this is Jesus saying, oh, I guess he's maybe put a finer point on it. He's saying the secondary causes don't work for this. Right. That w- what you need is a new creation. Right. And there is no secondary cause that will promote the same kind of healing that will give you the restorative effect that will bring you, in self, terms of salvific words, into the family of Christ. That's what we need to be mindful of, is there are no secondary causes that would yeah. allow us to ingratiate ourselves to God and to somehow earn his respect or to earn some kind of eternal reward. This is the way, and the way is Jesus. And so right. I'm so thankful that he has that kind of creative power that he would interject, interrupt, send his son, lean into that, come and disrupt, so to speak, so that he might save his own by the first cause, which of course was part of his plan from the very, very beginning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good way to summarize this, right? If we talk about creation and providence, creation is God operating, not according to secondary causation, right? He, he's operating in a way that is not it's not related to the chain of the normal chain of secondary causation, the natural causes. Providence is when God operates through those ordinary causes, those secondary causes. Mm-hmm. And it's his creative act in the initial act of creation, the first right. six days of creation, that is very good, that establishes that secondary cause of chain of, of yes. uh, secondary chain of causation. So there's there's a transition point between the sixth and seventh day, right? Where where God yeah. rests from all of his work and it causes it, it brings into being the secondary chain of causation. But that doesn't mean as we've said again and again now, it doesn't mean that he is not able to operate according to those that first cause uh, mode of operating. I guess so. I, I think I think that this is really a good stopping point for us as we go into these next couple episodes about different aspects of how how God's providential acts work, how God acts providentially. It's almost like I'm saying he's not acting providentially, and that's not true. Because even though the actual point of salvation, um, you know, justification, it happens, the actual energy, the effect of it is not something that happens according to, to natural causes. Right. That doesn't mean there are not natural causes that operate leading up to that. And so I think we, we maybe have gone a little too firm on this distinction. We have to recognize God's providence still does include these interruptions. Of course. It's not as though that's not his providence, right. but it's 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 his providence to operate in these creative interruptions. So I'm I'm excited to move forward. I'm excited to sort of see how this goes. Somewhere along the line, I should probably like read John Piper's book and see if he says any of this stuff. I haven't, so hopefully I'm not unintentionally plagiarizing him or anything, but I think that this is a really good uh, a really good thing for Reformed Christians to think about because I think especially after a year like this last year, questions about providence and and the you know the problem of evil salvation the the ordinary you're a sinner you need salvation that just doesn't land with people anymore. It's not that we shouldn't preach that. Don't hear me saying that we should we should change our message, but we need to be able to articulate other aspects of what God is doing that were kind of presupposed before. There was a presupposition that there was a God, that God created the world, and that the world is still somehow, you know, he's got the whole world in his hand. Like, that's that was a song that most people could sing and on some level could, like, agree to. Well, that's not really the way it is anymore. So when we tell someone, well, yeah, the, the you know, God 
Jesus was conceived uh, in the womb of a Virgin Mary without any male contribution, they're going to go, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. That, you're an idiot. Well, we have to be able to explain rationally and coherently right. from the scriptures how it is that we understand that to be possible. And the answer is, it's not, you're right, it's not, it's not possible according to natural causes, but we have to be able to articulate that and explain those differences. Otherwise, we just sound, it just sounds like special pleading. It sounds like we're yeah. saying like, well, yeah, this is the way it is, except for this one thing. And it becomes an argument of convenience, right. but that's not actually what we're saying. It's not the God of the gaps argument. It's not that when we can't explain something according to, to secondary causation that we just postulate God in that gap. What it's saying is that there are no gaps. All of the gap, so-called gaps are actually filled with God. It's like the reverse of that. We, we know, and, and it's not the God of the gaps because God is also the God of not the gaps. And that's what we're trying to get at. <laughs> God is the God of gap. We need a sponsorship from gap after that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's there saying. we go. All kinds of sponsorship opportunities for things like that. I was just, it, that just cracks me up because there was, I've never heard gap and no gap and no, non gaps so much, but you're, abs <laughs> you're absolutely right. God is the God of everything. I, I like the way you summarize that. I think the, the great thing to walk away with is when we understand these things, we can speak to them cogently and say, it makes sense that God would do these things because of who he is and how he exercises that providence. Yeah. And that's the bottom line. So you're right. Now, all of a sudden, we have this really firm logic because we're not just saying, oh, I don't understand it, so I'm just going to chalk it up to God. We need to appreciate, understand that it would make sense that he would, of course, send his son through a virgin birth, that he would regenerate man in such a way that, you know, like we talked about before, everywhere in the scriptures, we see God stacking the deck against himself. Everywhere we see, you know, the disciples just not understanding what he's saying. It's as if... God is the one who providentially opens everything up that fills all the spaces. And he yeah. does that in a number of ways. I think the stance we've taken today has in part been a kind of against our own environment and culture. We push back so hard because it's so much right now. What's in vogue is just to basically promulgate that God's really not that in control of most things. Yeah. And so we're, we're certainly pushing against that pretty hard. Yeah. Yes, we are as hard as we can. Yes. So, uh, Thank you, everybody who's listened. I mean, I know that some of this can be kind of heady, difficult stuff. And, and it, a lot of this is, is thinking about things in ways that if you're coming out of an even, you know, kind of a general evangelical background, like you've never, you've probably never thought about these things. You never would be forced to di really discuss or, or explore these things in any depth. So persevere, hang in there. You know, I think as we get into the more practical or the more application part of providence. We talk about salvation, the problem of evil, and, and we'll probably talk about eschatology and a couple other things. Hang in there because I think there's a lot of payout coming, but we have to set the, the get the foundation set up right before we start to build, or we're going to be on these shaky foundations and then things start to fall apart. So I'm super excited to keep going. I'm super, super happy. Just one more reminder. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to send out some, uh, special reform brotherhood merchandise to our Patreon sponsors. So if you are a Patreon supporter, uh, or you want to be a Patreon supporter, please make sure you go to reformbrotherhood.com and there's a little link in the top right corner that says join the brotherhood. There's a number of ways that you can uh, get involved. And one of them is to become a Patreon supporter. So uh, we're not going to do the striated uh, gifts. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just not our thing. So everyone who is a Patreon supporter, whenever it is that I send out these gifts is going to get a special gift from us. So if you're not a supporter and you want a special gift, then go ahead and become a supporter, even if it's just $1. But 
make sure you go in and get your address updated so that when I send it out, I mean, maybe you don't want to get your address updated and someone else can get some cool Reform Brotherhood merchandise and be like, what's the deal with these two cartoon characters on my mug or whatever it might be. So um, so check it out. Go, go sign up if you want to support us, if you've already you know, fulfilled your uh, commitment to your local church and you have a little bit left over and you'd like to continue to support what we're doing uh, financially, then check that out. And uh, again, you can go to logos.com slash reform brotherhood and you can get a 15% discount on any Logos base package and also five free books. So check that out. And Jesse, any other housekeeping announcements? Just thanks to all the brothers and sisters who are part of the community here. We love the interaction on Facebook, on Twitter, and of course, you can always reach out to us, as Tony said. We always love to hear from everybody. We got lots of great stuff planned, including what I hope is lots more references to DuckTales in the episodes yeah. to come. Woohoo. DuckTales, woohoo. Woohoo. Woo yeah. All right, Jesse. <laughs> just to just to round this off with a final uh, a final Mandalorian reference. Oh, okay. I think okay. that this is the definitive episode on Providence and Creation. And when something is definitive, what do we say? We say, I have spoken. Oh, yes. That's good. I that's good. You have spoken. That was a well, terrible impersonation. No, no. That, was, that wasn't bad. But until yeah. we do it again next time, Tony. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.